Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, Rick, this is Mother's Day weekend, and we want to take this opportunity to wish moms everywhere a happy Mother's Day. We certainly do. We are grateful for the women in our lives. Uh, our mom, we both love our mom, of course, and we're grateful for her and the, the support that she's been for us. And then, of course, our wives and, and the mothers of our children. Uh, we definitely want to say that we are thankful for them, and without them, we couldn't do what we do. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. So happy Mother's Day, everyone. Plus, I do want to let you know that I will be in New Hampshire this weekend Franklin, New Hampshire, at Hope Community Church, Pastor Glenn Carter. I'll be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday teaching the book of Joel. So if you're around that area in New Hampshire, I'd love for you to come over, and I'd love to spend some time with you. That's May 13th, 14th, and 15th in Franklin, New Hampshire, at Hope Community Church. And uh, we're right in the middle of the Feast of First Fruits, which in Israel now they're counting the Omer, which means that uh, this is leading up to the uh, the harvest of the barley, which is the uh, the first fruits that are brought to the temple, and that is the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost, and we're heading up to that. Rick, we've got a lot to cover today. Our, our broadcast partners normally are Ken and Dave. We've got uh, I know that we've got some great questions, and I'm looking forward to our conversation with them. But then uh, Pastor Paul Blair, former Chicago Bear, I'm looking forward to having him on with us. Of course, Tom Meyer, Professor Tom Meyer, will be talking about First Fruits. And R.C. Merle will be back with something very interesting about the gold standard in the world that Russia and China are taking part of. I think we need to get ready and get uh, going on our program today, and I'm looking forward to a good one. Ken Timmerman joins us today. He's an established author and journalist, and he's our expert on geopolitical affairs. Ken, as uh, always, thank you for joining us. Uh, Rick, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, let's get started right away, Ken. And the first place I would like to go to, I've seen some stories coming across in the news now that relations between Israel and Russia are getting very tense, and for a couple of different reasons. Uh, they are getting tense, and it's uh, really quite extraordinary to see this because Putin had uh, very close relationships with Bibi Netanyahu, and he even has had a good relationship with a new prime minister, Naftali Bennett. The leaders go back and forth, but over the past week, 10 days or so, we've got Lavrov, the Russian prime minister, who's been making these absolutely outrageous anti-Semitic remarks, uh, talking about Hitler having Jewish blood and slamming Israel for supporting anti-Semites and neo-Nazis in Ukraine. I mean, these are things that are really way, way, way over the top. And Israelis have responded, I think, quite understandably. You know, they're, they're upset with this. They've called out Lavrov. And the Russians, being Russian, uh, in other words, a criminal enterprise, they won't just back off and say Lavrov was wrong. So they're going to double down on this. So I think you are going to see greater tensions. And what I really am worried about here is that uh, Lavrov himself uh, has not been chastised by Putin. Instead, what he's done is reached out to both Hamas and to Fatah. He's invited uh, the Hamas leader, Musa Abu Marzouk, to Moscow. And uh, you could see increased Russian support for Hamas. You could see uh, increased Russian support, military support for Iran. And you could see a, um, an end 
to Russia's accommodating policy towards Israeli airstrikes in Syria when the Israelis go after Hezbollah and Iranian targets. So this could be a big deal. Uh, It's not a good development for Israel. If Russia was to strengthen their ties with the Palestinian leadership and Hamas, and we already know that they have ties with Iran, uh, they may be forced to choose between who they're going to have as an ally. And and this would be bad for Israel, but it would also be bad for Russia. Uh, Israel is one of the very few Western countries that has been willing to listen to Putin, that has been willing to continue a dialogue with Putin, has even uh, posed itself as an intermediary between Zelensky and Putin. Uh, Russia doesn't have an awful lot of options, a lot of partners who could play that role. And if they insist on alienating the Israelis uh, in this way and by uh, taking actions directly contrary to Israel's interests, I think, you know, they're going to pay a price for it. They will pay a big price for it. And uh, as I say, Russia does not have a lot of options today. Well, speaking of playing the fence with uh, various allies, I'd like to talk about Turkey. And they seem to be, at one sense, courting the West uh, and maybe NATO. And then on the other hand, they're friendly with Russia as well. That's right. They are indeed playing the fence. And this is Erdogan, uh, you know, his his typical operation. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth at the same time. Uh, He's got quite a talent for this. Uh, Look, they have... In the beginning of the war against Ukraine, uh, Turkey pretended that they were going to bottle up the uh, Russian fleet in the Black Sea. But as it turns out, uh, they've not just bottled up the Russian fleet, but they've also kept NATO out of the Black Sea. So uh, they have essentially closed the Straits of Dardanelles in uh, Istanbul to all naval vessels. Uh, Now, you could say Oh, well, that's actually a pretty smart thing because it avoids a naval confrontation in in the waters off of Ukraine. And and okay, maybe, but still, Turkey is a NATO member, and once again, they're not behaving like a NATO member. Now, they're also not behaving like a NATO member in their approach towards the Russian oligarchs. They have recently invited the oligarchs to come to Turkey to invest in Turkey. They have quite pointedly refused to seize yachts, these super yachts that have arrived, uh, one from uh, Oleg Deripaski. They've refused to to seize it as uh, the uh, West and even the UN has asked them to do. They've also refused to send S-300 or S-400 missiles to Ukraine. These are missiles that Turkey purchased from Russia, angering the United States. We talked about this a couple of years ago and causing the U.S. to exclude Turkey from the uh, F-35 uh, multi-role fighter jet program. Uh, so they're not going to send those defense missiles to Ukraine either. So yeah, Turkey's playing the fence, uh, but they're doing it in ways that, again, I think are going to not benefit Turkey. Well, let's move away from Russia's allies and focus a little bit on Russia here. And I saw another concerning story this week. During this time of the Ukrainian crisis and Russia at odds with the whole world, they now decide to do a simulated nuclear strike. Right. So let's go back to this notion of Russia as a criminal um, organization with Putin as the mafia boss, the mafia don. Um, That's what I think you're seeing. And, And how does the mafia... Don stay in power? Well, he makes his opponents cower in fear. And he does not issue idle threats 
the way Joe Biden has issued idle threats in the past. He uh, um, demonstrates his power and by frequently carrying out his threats, he makes you believe that uh, this is very real. So this simulated nuclear strike from Kaliningrad uh, on NATO forces is meant to make Joe Biden cower in fear. And you know what? Biden is cowering in fear. That's the problem. We have a leader in our country who does not understand power politics. He has never been on the right side of a national security or foreign policy issue in, in the past 50 years. And that's not my opinion. That's Robert Gates, the former defense secretary for Obama, who said that. So Biden is cowering in fear and Putin is uh, strutting his stuff and trying to intimidate us to get us to back off from supporting Ukraine. The European Union is trying to control Putin and Russia, and they are almost ready for a new round of sanctions. Are these going to have any effect? Well, isn't it extraordinary that Europe is leading this battle, the battle on sanctions and even the frontline battle to, to help refugees? Uh, you know, Poland, by the way, Poland and Hungary have turned out to be the greatest of U.S. allies in all of Europe. Uh, since the end of the Cold War. They, they, Poland has welcomed millions of Ukrainian refugees into their homes. Individuals are welcoming people into their homes. And million, there are no refugee camps in Poland because they don't need them. The Poles have opened their hearts and opened their homes. And so here what you've got is the European Union, which we had always thought was itself groveling to the Russians to make sure that they would get Russian natural gas. They are finally stepping up to the plate and talking about another round of sanctions, serious sanctions, while the U.S. is dithering. Well, speaking of leadership in the European Union, I want to ask my final question. And it uh, I know you're a resident or you have a home in France, Ken, so I know you can speak uh, very expertly on this subject. But Emmanuel Macron uh, won his election in France, so he is still in power there. And with the retirement of uh, Angela Merkel from Germany, is he poised to be the next leader of Europe? Well, he certainly thinks so. Uh, but will Macron become a serious leader? or just another little cookie is something I think it's going to take some time uh, to sort out. Remember, the same thing happened to Chirac after he won re-election against Marine Le Pen's father in 2003, and he won election with something like 80%. Okay, Macron got 57%, not quite as big. But this all went to Chirac's head, and Chirac saw himself not just as the leader of Europe, but the leader of the world, and he opposed George W. Bush in the war in Iraq. He sent his foreign minister to oppose America at the United Nations. And he set up a real uh, hostility. I mean, he stirred up a real deep hostility among the French elites towards the United States that I wrote about in my book, The French Betrayal of America, which came out uh, shortly after that. Uh, we'll see if little cookie uh, is infatuated in the same way with himself that Chirac was. He seems to be a little bit more level-headed, uh, but this is the real danger, that he takes this election victory as a personal achievement, as a personal victory, and that it goes to his head and he starts to behave in ways that alienates the United States under the weak leadership of uh, Joe Biden. Well, Ken, thank you so much for your expertise. Your wealth of knowledge is amazing to me, and you really do put it in terms that we can understand. So we appreciate you today, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always my pleasure. God bless. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. 
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. An unprecedented April heat wave affected northern India and Pakistan during April and continues into early May. The temperatures reached 122 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 50 degrees Celsius in some areas. Nehemiah with FMI says one of his uncles in Pakistan died because of the heat. People don't have reliable electricity amid severe power cuts. FMI partners work mostly in the rural areas of Pakistan where the suffering has been greatest. Ask God to protect them as they act as the hands and feet of Christ. And political and military analysts expect something big from Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday regarding the Ukraine conflict. May 9 is Victory Day, marking the defeat of Nazi Germany. It's an important day for Russia because Soviet troops were the victors in World War II. Russia's foreign minister says the anniversary will have no bearing on military operations in Ukraine. Ask God to protect the Transworld Radio workers in Kiev as they broadcast the hope of Christ. You've been listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. We've reached a segment of our program where we typically have our Middle East news update. And to do this, we have our good friend Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us today. As always, Rick, I'm blessed to be with you. Well, let's turn our focus to the city of Jerusalem. And I know over the last several weeks and during Ramadan, the Temple Mount was the focus of much of the world at that time, and, and certainly those interested parties in Israel itself. I noticed on the recently celebrated Israeli Independence Day that there was a large contingent uh, of Jewish visitors to the Temple Mount. Uh, actually, Rick, nearly a thousand Jews went up there, and that's four times larger than the last time that Jews were allowed up there on Independence Day, which was before COVID, so 2019, but still a huge increase. And uh, the Palestinians didn't like it naturally, and there was rioting going on. You, uh, you could hear the riots in the background as the Jews were being escorted by police, by the way. They weren't allowed to stop or pray, or do anything, but a number of them kept breaking out in song, including the Israeli National Anthem and some other things, and the police would try to stop that. There were some people arrested, both on the Jewish side and on the Arab side, but it came after Hamas's leader in the Gaza Strip, Yahya Sinwar, last weekend called for a holy war in the region, Rick, against Israel, not just from the Palestinians, but from all the Muslims in the region, saying that uh, Israel is uh, taking over Al-Aqsa and shouldn't be up there. They're invading. They're, you know, all the words they use. 
and indicating that they may be planning some major war. And later in the week, we had another Hamas leader say that they were prepared to launch over a thousand rockets into Israel at any moment because of these provocations, supposed provocations in Jerusalem. Well, Rick, you know, I know that Jews are normally not allowed on the Temple Mount, only on special times and special days, especially on the Sabbath. They weren't allowed up there for the last two weeks because of the ending of Ramadan, and no Jews were allowed up. But on Israel's Independence Day, every year, Jews are allowed uh, to go up there, at least smaller numbers of Jews, uh, and uh, but this was, as I said, nearly a thousand. So the conflict goes on, but the rhetoric is very strong, and some Israeli analysts are fearing that in three weeks' time, when we have Jerusalem Day, uh, marking the reunification of Jerusalem and the uh, conquest of the old city and the Temple Mount, that we may see uh, the start of a new polar war then. The signs are growing that that's possible. So the Israelis are vigilant, but the trouble goes on. But the Jewish people went up there, and Hatikva was sung up there. I think that's probably the first time that's happened since 1948. Well, David, I've been up on the Temple Mount, and I know you have too, and I've seen Jewish groups up there, and there has been uh, Muslim or Palestinian groups singing to them, you know, uh, in in a type of a war of chanting. But David, I just want you to clarify for our listeners about the logistics. The Temple Mount is a large area. The Dome of the Rock is in the middle of the Temple Mount. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is at one end. So when these Jewish groups go up onto the Temple Mount, they're really, most of the time coming nowhere close to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and definitely not trying to go in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Exactly. They have no interest in going into the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It was was Solomon's stables were there in ancient times, not the temple. It was on the other side of the mount, most uh, scholars uh, believe. And they have no interest in going into the golden domed uh, Temple Mount Shrine as well, uh, Shrine of the Rock. Uh, They just walk in areas where they don't think the temple was and where there are no Muslim things going on. And uh, where they pray is normally over behind um, near the um, eastern gate, and you can't even see them. And that's just small groups. But that didn't happen yesterday. The police were with these people. They escorted them quickly. They didn't allow them to stop. It was just sort of a quick tour in and out. Uh, But the um, Palestinians weren't singing, Rick. They were rioting and throwing stones, and and, but they were Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. on the other side of the mount. They weren't next to these people or near these people. It's again, whose God is God? Mm -hmm. Why are you Jews up here? This is an exclusive Muslim holy site. Well, of course, the Dome of the Rock was built on the site of an ancient church, Byzantine church, which was built on what they thought, the Christians at the time, Byzantine Christians thought, had been the site of the temple. So it's only a holy site because there were Jewish temples up there thousands of years ago. You're right, they weren't singing. Uh, I know that the Palestinians were chanting Allah Akbar, which means God is great in, in Arabic. Of course, they're talking about Muhammad, and that goes to what you were saying. It's is the, the, the whole uh, situation centers around whose God is God, correct? It is, and, uh, you know, they think it's an exclusive place for them, but it is Judaism's holiest site on earth. 
Well, David, we are coming up on the marking the anniversary of the reunification of the city of Jerusalem, and that is what gave the Jewish people access to the Temple Mount. That was the 1967 Six-Day War. Through all these years, how do we look at Jerusalem now, and how has it progressed or changed or led Israel during these last 55 years? Well, it's uh, grown tremendously in population, for one thing, over that time. It was just a 100,000, I think, or so uh, when it was uh, captured in 67. There's now nearly a million residents. It's still about 20% Arab, about 30% ultra-Orthodox observant Jews, and the rest uh, more secular Jews. And there's a few others, Armenians and others there. But uh, when I uh, first moved there in 1984, it was still a fairly uh, backward Place. And in fact, all of Israel was economically struggling. We had hyperinflation then. Most people didn't have a television set. Many didn't even yet have a, a refrigerator. Uh, cars were limited and the roads were bad and etc. And Jerusalem was very much like that and the rest of the country too, but especially that. Now it's a thriving modern city, as you know, with skyscrapers everywhere and a modern rail system, light rail system, restaurants, excellent restaurants all over the place. There was hardly one when I moved there in 84. So it's really matured and grown. But of course, the controversy at its center over whose God is God is played out there more than any other place on earth right there in Jerusalem. So it's a unique city in many, many ways, a special city. And I miss living there, but I don't miss, of course, the the tension that does uh, often display itself there. Certainly is, David, like no other city in the world. I do miss being there myself. Last time I was there was pre-coronavirus, but we do plan on going back. Just a special feeling there and just an incredible place to be. Well, all of Israel at this time, and of course, Jerusalem being the capital, but all of Israel is experiencing a continued, and we've talked about it in the past uh, with Jews making Aliyah, but there seems to be a continued growth in immigration. A lot of people coming in, a lot of Jewish people coming into Israel, and really not a whole lot of people leaving. Actually, over 200,000 moved to Israel in the last 10 years, Rick, and that's despite uh, the coronavirus, because, of course, immigration dropped to near zero in the last two years. But in the eight years previous to that, nearly 200,000 and 400,000 moved to Israel in the 10 years before that. And um, the analysts say there's two main reasons for this, Rick. One is what I just mentioned, that Israel has become a prosperous first world country where you can get the latest movies and TV programs, excellent restaurants, good transportation, uh, quality housing, uh, affordable also. And and the second reason, the growing anti-Semitism, in particular in the West, especially in Britain, France, and the United States. So the Aliyah, the immigration from those three countries in particular, has been very strong and growing also from Canada and Mexico and many other places. Jewish people just have concluded, uh, many of them anyway, that the best place to live, the safest place to live, is now Israel. And uh, they're flocking there, and uh, the immigration for this year has already started with over 10,000 Ukrainian Jews coming in, and it's expected another half million may come from there and Russia in the next few years, depending, of course, on what happens. But Israel continues to be 
the center of Jewish life, and uh, this is just an illustration of it. And also, David, uh, an illustration of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, the, the Jewish people coming back into the land. Exactly, and as you know, the Bible said there would be fishers and hunters that would bring them back in their second uh, return, uh, the fishers being those who you know invite them and help them, and Christian groups are doing this, and J many Jewish groups, etc., and the hunters, those that are hunting them, those that are after them, Hitler, etc. So both exist, but Israel has grown, and nearly 10 million Jews will be there soon, and it is an exciting and vibrant place, a very young culture, and despite all the problems, it is the chosen land, the promised land for the Jewish people. Well, amen to that, David. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You do a great job of educating our listeners. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Glad to do it, Rick. God bless. Well, we're going to take a break right now, but when we come back, we will continue to look at current events in the light of God's prophetic word right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the Shepherd's Field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we do examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And that's one of the things that we started over 25 years ago. I know I've been saying 21 years ago, but over 25 years ago, my father started this program examining uh, events going on around the world in the light of what God's Word says. And that is so very important as we do that. Well, over the years, uh, I, I was involved in producing the program. Now I'm on the other side of the mic. But I used to hear my dad always introduce our next uh, broadcast partner as former Chicago Bear and Super Bowl champion, Pastor Paul Blair. Pastor, welcome to the program today. Jimmy, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always a joy. Well, I've always wanted to say that, and I, uh, it's great <laughs> to have you as a friend. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, so many people uh, have followed us on our website and the, and the DVD that we did with you over the years looking at is the United States and Bible prophecy. As you were talking about the pilgrims as they came across and you were laying out for us the founding of America. And I do want to talk to you about the Supreme Court and what's taking place. But specifically, before we get to that and before we talk about what's going on in Oklahoma, I want to find out what's happening in your ministry. I know you just uh, finished a pastor's conference, and uh, what's going on? 
Well, we've got a number of fastest conferences on the schedule, Jimmy, and we'd like to invite everybody to visit our website. It's called libertypastors.com. And we have four upcoming. Actually, we've got one upcoming in St. Louis in July. Uh, we've got one in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, coming up in October. Then we've got a, a, an event in Austin, Texas in late August. And we've got one in Tulsa in September. And what we do is we take 100 pastors at a time, and we, we, it only costs each pastor $99. Mm-hmm. We have uh, donors that actually subsidize the rest of this because the ministry is so important. But we get these guys in a resort hotel for three days with their wives, and they have a wonderful time of fellowship with 100 other pastors and our speakers. Uh, they have a time of break, which is much needed. They need a little R&R, a little second honeymoon. Mm-hmm. But then we do 20 hours of biblical worldview training. And we begin with the question, what part of your life is Jesus not the Lord over? Mm. And then, of course, everyone will, will answer, well, of course, he's supposed to be the Lord of all of our lives. And that's right. But if that is the case, then there should be nothing off-limits in our preaching. So somebody that says, oh, you can't preach about that in church, oh, you mean that Jesus isn't the Lord over that part of your life. Oh. The reality is he's not just the Lord of Sundays. He's supposed to be the Lord of our family, supposed to be the Lord of our business, our business ethics. Uh, he's supposed to be the Lord of our civil government and how we approach politics. He's supposed to be the Lord of our sexuality. Jesus is Lord of all of our lives. We're supposed to be Christ followers in every facet of our lives. And most pastors haven't been taught that, so we introduce them to that concept. And quite frankly, the response we hear from most of these men is, you've transformed my ministry. We understand really what it means to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower Mm -hmm. in every area of my life. You know, and as you said, Jimmy, your dad and I, we had, well, all of us, the whole family, we had a great time recording when we were in Plymouth and we spent that time in Boston. But our listeners and Christians need to understand that what we have enjoyed here in America is the exception to the rule. This isn't the rule. You know, we've enjoyed civil liberty Mm -hmm. and religious Mm -hmm. liberty. But for the vast part of 6,000 years of human history, you've had a tyrant king or monarch of some sort, call him a sultan, call him a dictator, mm-hmm. call him emperor, mm-hmm. call him king, call him you know, Caesar, call him Pharaoh, whatever, ruling over his subjects. But only in America, and only for the last 245 years, or actually go back and the concept began with the Mayflower Compact, where you had the people creating, constituting a limited general government, you know, pledging to obey the law that they have created, and then we're self-governing. And we've enjoyed the blessings of liberty, we've enjoyed the blessings of economic liberty, but all these things, as our founding fathers knew, for people to be self-governing, they have to be educated, and they have to be moral. And we have always led the world in both, until basically the last 50 or 60 years. And now we see our, our education, public ed and higher ed, no longer teaches. We're just in the process of indoctrinating people into climate hysteria or LGBT nonsense or CRT division. Uh, and we also um, don't teach morality. You know, Beginning in the 60s, we saw the sexual revolution. And then, of course, abortion followed that. And we've been fighting that moral battle now for 50 years, and hopefully we're about to turn the tide on that subject. Well, and we're going to continue on that subject, but I do want to ask you, I mean, we do look at prophetic events. Where do you see America in the future? 
Oh, buddy, you know, your dad said, you know, I, I agree. I, I see America, you know, in, in Joel 3, uh, what, Zechariah 14, Revelation 19, it says all the nations of the world are going to come together against Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we've got to be a part of that, all the nations. And, you know, I've always known that America would, would fall lockstep in line with global governance mm-hmm. after the mm-hmm. church was raptured out. Uh, but I've been amazed at how far we've fallen with the church still here. So, you know, I, I, when, I, when I see, you know, read about the Ten Kings uh, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's vision and Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, 7. and Daniel 9 mm-hmm. and everything, I, I, I see the World Economic Forum as, as that group that's trying to run the world. And, of course, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum right now is trying to totally renovate the global economy. You know, we, we've basically operated off of the dollar as the world reserve currency, and we've done that ever since World War II with what was called the Bretton Woods Conference. Well, now they aren't even worrying about the value of the dollar anymore. You know, our politicians don't even talk about the mm-hmm. national debt mm-hmm. or, or, or our annual deficit. They are intentionally just devaluing the dollar, and I, I don't believe it's by accident. I don't believe they're that stupid. I believe they're intentionally trying to destroy the dollar so they can replace it with the central bank digital currency, which can be programmed and tracked. And I think that's the system that the Antichrist will ultimately use. So, you know, I, I see us getting very late in the game. You know, I, we may be the the generation that actually sees uh, the the or hears the the shofar sound and caught up to be with the Lord and. You know, it, it certainly seems, um, as you look at eschatology, that it seems that the world is taking shape for the things that we have studied for years uh, and, and predicted would happen uh, during the tribulation period. You're so correct on all of that. And do you see America still being America? Not so much in the prophecy, and I agree with you 100%. That's something that we teach. But, you know, uh, America might not even be in America in the next five Years, I know that no. uh, geopolitical analysts in Europe see the division in America from a political between Democrats and Republicans, and a a mind a thinking process of how we have we are split basically down the middle now. So, seeing that, uh, how how will America survive this political split in the politics uh, that we're living in right now? Well, you know, Jimmy, I, I sit there and, you know, the Old Testament lays out, you know, Bible prophecy. Of course, the New Testament is built on all those first 39 books. But, you know, Jesus said in his mystery parable as the kingdom dissertation, and Paul repeated in Ephesians 3 that this age of the church was basically hidden in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course we talk about the mountain peaks of prophecy and how the Old Testament prophets could see, you know, Zechariah 9-9 with, with the Messiah coming, humbly bringing salvation, riding on a donkey's colt. And then we see the Messiah and power and glory in Zechariah 14. And, but they couldn't see that valley in between that we call and now know as, as the church age. Mm-hmm. You know, and as I look in the Bible, I, I, I know that the pilgrims crossed the Atlantic on the Mayflower, but I can't find that in the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that we signed the Declaration of Independence, but I can't find that in the Bible. And I, and I know that America exists because we're here, but that's not really talked about in the Bible. You know, so I don't know whether we are going to be fortunate enough to see a third great awakening mm-hmm. or whether mm-hmm. we are going to just to continue, a row, continue our erosion to global tyranny and depravity. 
But I know that if the church doesn't wake up and stand against wickedness and point people to Jesus, I know that we won't have a revival. So, you know, I know what's going to come, or I've got a pretty good idea what's going to happen, you know, in that last seven years after the church is taken out. But between now and the rapture, I don't know if we're going to have a free America or if we're going to continue to decline. Mm. But that's what we're doing, what we're doing. We are going to fight. I know that there is, there's cause and effect. There's, a, there's a, a consequence of our actions. And ignoring the problem, ignoring our responsibility to stand against sin and wickedness at every turn, uh, I know if we don't do that, then we will just continue this slide. And my hope and mission, Jimmy, is that my children and my grandchildren, if the Lord tarries, will be able to enjoy the blessings of liberty that we have enjoyed up until the trumpet sounds. So I know that America is going to continue to decline. Uh, I, uh, sadly, you know, when you look at the world players right now and the things that are going on around Ukraine, there really isn't a good guy's side. You know, the, the good guys, sadly, are the poor, innocent victims mm-hmm. that are being chased out of their homes and being killed in this big pawn, this big game that's being played by the, the global pawnbrokers. But, you know, you've got Xi Jinping, which is a mob boss, sitting at the table, running to run the world. You've got Putin, who's a mob boss, sitting at a table, wanting to run the world. But, quite frankly, he's also a proud Russian nationalist. And then you've got the, the, the World Economic Forum with the West and Klaus Schwab, and sadly, with our, our, our deep state in D.C., we're in bed with Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, yep. and we're not the good guys anymore. So everybody that's around the table, it's like a table full of mob bosses, and quite frankly, right now, I think Putin is rebelling. I think he's trying to take greater Russia out of this great reset, and I don't see who the good guy is, but I see us moving uh, closer to uh, what I would expect to see if I was the last generation that was actually going to see the or hear the trumpet sound and be that generation that was caught up to be with the Lord. So I think we're getting close. We're going to fight as hard as we can for liberty for as long as we're here. We're going to see as many people saved as we can. And uh, <laughs> and quite frankly, the, the King is coming. Amen. Well, let me ask you quickly, and, I, and you have laid out perfect... Uh, this whole Roe versus Wade and the Supreme yep. Court, what are your thoughts about that? Where do you see, are you concerned about it, this? It's a step in the right direction, because we, we are not, we have been trained to think that we are a monotheistic nation ruled by an imperial president or an imperial court. We are not to be dictated to. Mm. We are actually a union of sovereign states, and that's the only way that we can function well. If Massachusetts wants to be liberal, let them. Oklahoma wants to be conservative. Mm. We like low taxes. We're still moral. Well, Oklahoma is Oklahoma. Massachusetts is Massachusetts. And we work together for our common defense and for our general welfare. Mm. That really is what the Supreme Court verdict did, as they took this and threw it back to the states. Because there is no, uh, there is no natural right for a mother to kill her child. That is just that's just wicked. Exactly. But this was never a federal decision to begin with. And that's really what Roe versus Wade did. It made up law out of thin air, out of whole cloth. And it had been a state by state issue. They made it a federal issue 
And now what this jurisdiction, what this decision is doing is basically giving it back to the states where it began. Wow. <laughs> Pastor Blair, thank you so much. Uh, I know that you and my father talked about these issues over the years, and uh, I needed to get you on. But more than that, we've got extra. And uh, tell us the website again that pastors can go to to uh, be a part of your pastor's program libertypastors.com. we got all sorts of free resources there. Plus, it's only 99 bucks for three days of a luxury stay. Uh, send your pastor, or if you're a pastor, come join us, or at least visit our website and enjoy all the free resources that are there, libertypastors.com. Pastor Paul Blair, thank you so much, brother. Jimmy, my pleasure. God bless you. Pastor Paul Blair gives us information pertaining to Roe versus Wade and the abortion fight that's going on in Oklahoma. And uh, he, he keeps us aware, and I think it's so very important. Well, Professor Tom Meyer is a very close friend. He's no stranger to those that are seasoned listeners of Prophecy Today. And Tom, welcome to the program today. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's great to have you back. And I know, I understand that you're going to do ministry this weekend. Yeah, we're driving about uh, 200 miles from Northern California to the border of Oregon in California to speak at the ocean at Crescent City. Uh-huh. So somebody's got to do it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're doing it. And we have listeners that are out there. And uh, I would encourage you to uh, go to your website, BibleMemoryMan.com. Yes, sir. The BibleMemoryMan.com. And they could uh, see where you're going to be. I, I, I'm sure you have your schedule on there and which church will be there in Crescent City. Well, Tom, I wanted to talk to you this week because we're right in the middle of the Feast of First Fruits, which is one of the spring feasts that takes place. They start celebrating it. They start counting the days up to Pentecost or Shavuot, which takes place 49 days after Passover, the second night of Passover, they start counting those days. It leads up to the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And I know as a professor of Bible, you know all this and the many years that you spent in Israel. But how I want to tie this in, Tom, is you brought up to me the fact of your work with Jews for Jesus and evangelizing in the in Israel and the Holy Land. Can you just share with us what took place and what's going on today? Sure. Well, most people actually don't know about this. But starting way back in 2008, up until right before the plague came, Jimmy, for the first time in 2,000 years, it's amazing if you think about it, Mm -hmm. first time in 2,000 years, the whole land of Israel, just like in the first century with Christ fulfilling the the first fruits, right, back then on the day of Pentecost, for the first time in 2,000 years, the gospel was spread all over Israel through the ministry of Jews for Jesus and these different campaigns called Behold Your God. So what we did, Jimmy, is once a year from 2008 up until the plague, once or twice a year what we did is we took some different pockets or regions in the Holy Land and just saturated those areas with the gospel, Mm. whether it was billboards or radio and TV advertisements or our bread and butter was handing out gospel tracts on the streets, the same exact spot the apostles did 2,000 years ago, that were really, I guess you could look at it maybe as paving the way for the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, when maybe one day, you know, that all these Jews that we share the gospel with through our ministry will come to faith. Amen. You know, and that's so very important because a lot of people, you know, they understand that the Jews are God's chosen people, but they still need, in this period in time, 
which is what we call the church age. They need to accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their personal Savior, that Jesus Christ came to die for their sins on the cross. And by doing that, that's how they have eternal life or a restored relationship with God. No other prayer that the Jews pray today is heard by God until they first say that prayer, Lord, save me. And you had a very specific role in that. And, you know, folks need to know, a large portion of Israel is not religious. And I mean, not not only are they not religious Jews uh, as far as following the Old Testament law, but they're not believers. And they, I mean, that's a very small percentage of the Jewish population. Do you happen to know what that percentage is? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's not 1%. It's not 0.1%. But through the studies Jesus, Jews for Jesus has done, they say it's 0.01%. So you're talking about eight to 10,000, give or take, eight to 10,000 Jews in Israel believe in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. It, it, it sounds terrible and it looks terrible, but if you look at the increase on a, on a chart, it looks really good because in 1948, there were not many believers. I think mm. there was, they say, about 500 believers in all of Israel. So we've gone from 500 to 10,000 in 74 years, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, we were able to share the gospel with all of them, both small and great. From I even, Jimmy, I had the prayer answered. I was praying for the longest time. I prayed, prayed when I was a young person in college that God would let me share the gospel with the king of the earth. Mm. And we were uh, ministering up in the Galilee, and of all places, we were at Ein Harod. You've been there. Mm-hmm. That's where you take your guts, where the, Gideon was given a That's right, the spring. Guests. Yep. Yep. And we were handing out tracts, and no one was listening, and I turned around, and my answer to prayer came. There showed the, showed up out of nowhere the president of Israel, and <laughs> he was there to cut a, cut a ribbon for an Arab-Jewish kid bike race. So I waited until all the TV cameras were gone, and I didn't want to make too much of a spectacle of it, but I walked right through the Secret Service, right through the detail with his big yellow shirt on it, had a bullseye on it, and said, Jews for Jesus in Hebrew. <laughs> And I gave a New Testament, a Brit Hadashah, and shared the gospel with the president of Israel, Shimon Peretz. So wow. it's an amazing thing that happened that could, like we said, be in many ways be preparing the way for what God's doing next. Amen, amen. And we do know that one day uh, in the New Covenant, there will be a redemption where the Jewish people will, will recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. God is their God, and he truly, they are his people, and he is their God. Well, that's a great story, Tom. Thank you so much. Uh, we want to pray for you and uh, this weekend as you are out. Are you going to be reciting from memory any books of the Bible? Yeah, I will be doing the entire book of Revelation this Sunday. One of these days. I hope people get to sit in a service and hear that. But uh, we'll be praying for you as you do your ministry. And thank you for that update as to how the gospel is going forward in the land of Israel to God's chosen people, the Jewish people. Thank you, Tom. God bless. Well, Professor Tom Meyer from Shasta Bible College, and he's on a trip this weekend to recite the whole book of Revelation. That's his ministry, the Bible Memory Man. Uh, com. Go to his website. Well, uh, another friend of ours uh, that was on last week, and I said we had to have him back. Hello, RC. Welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you, Jimmy. It's good to be with you. Yeah, RC Murrow, uh, no, no uh, stranger to our, our broadcast. You had two posts this week, uh, RC, on your website, prophecytracker.org, that got my attention. The first headline, a new gold standard. 
Kremlin intends to back ruble with gold and commodities. And if that wasn't disturbing enough, the second headline was Russia is returning to the gold standard. Is China next? So tell us about that. Yeah, Jimmy, these, uh, this, this first headline was uh, from a comment made by the secretary of the Russian Security Council, Nikolai Patrushev, who was not only one of the most powerful security officers in Russia, but also a close ally of Vladimir Putin. In fact, Patrushev took over the Russian Federal Security Service, the FSB, from Putin in 1999. Hmm. The FSB is the successor organization to the KGB. So is Patrushev, is this a name that we had better be getting used to? You know, borrowing from an old Wall Street adage, Jimmy, when Patrushev talks, people listen. And it's, uh, it wow. is Patrushev who has been working on the plan to back the Russian ruble with gold and commodities. And that carries a lot of weight, pun intended, in <laughs> Russia. Wow. You had a second headline that China may follow suit. How so will this take place? Yeah, Jimmy, the, the idea that Russia is planning an asset-backed currency is one of the most drastic changes to the foreign policy currency market since the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. Because as of right now, in 2022, there are zero countries backing their cu currencies with gold, though many have gold reserves. Jimmy, the world is awash with fiat currencies, simply defined as paper backed only by the faith of the issuer. It's virtually an IOU. If we get into a time machine and go back to mid-2021, we will likely find Russia and China planning the economic impact of this whole invasion before Russian troops began to line up on the border of Ukraine. Both Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping knew that Joe Biden's base would be pushing a leftist green agenda, and he did not disappoint. On his first day in office, Joe Biden shut down the Keystone Pipeline, started onerous regulations that would choke off existing drilling and fracking, while inexplicably strengthening Russia's Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, bringing oil and gas into Europe. As an added bonus to Russia and a detriment to Israel, on January 22, 2022, Joe Biden withdrew support for the East Med pipeline that could have provided natural gas from Israel's Levant Basin to Europe in 2025. So Europe, uh, Russia and China also knew that after the Ukraine invasion, the only weapon the West could use against Russia was sanctions. True to form, a weak U.S. administration more concerned with woken climate issues than leading the world in energy froze 10 billion in Russian asset reserves. So in retaliation, Russia blackmailed Europe by forcing payment for much needed oil to be paid in rubles rather than U.S. dollars. And here's where it gets tricky. You see, the Russian ruble is too small in scope to be a world reserve currency. But China's yuan, already in the IMF basket of possible backup reserve currencies, may be. Well, let me ask you this question real quick. And you were talking about Joe Biden. Do you think Joe Biden was aware of this program or is he just kind of he's falling into their trap? Yeah, it's really hard to know that. Um, but but just by his actions mm -hmm. and how he, he choked off the supply of oil to the United States, which could have been a big benefit to Europe, um, the, uh, our enemies were just looking to take advantage of it. So it's really hard to know what he knew or what his team knew. But uh but as, as it stands right now, they're taking advantage of what we've done to ourselves. Well, I like how you always uh, bring in uh, sayings, and I have a saying, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So, I, you know, we'll just leave that there. But I do think, and we, uh, you and I both agree, that God uses world leaders to accomplish his will. So, okay, how does this all relate to Bible prophecy? 
you know, as you and I have said so many times, there is no lone superpower resembling the United States in Bible prophecy. A change in well-reserved currency or even the addition of a second reserve currency would be a devastating blow to U.S. prestige as an economic superpower, especially a reserve currency backed by gold. A senior White House official said Russia has up to 2,300 tons of gold, while China actually has more gold than the United States, which, according to current official figures, is the world's largest holder with 8,133 tons, Mm. begging the question, will the yuan be backed by gold next? An emerging bloc of nations, Russia, China, Iran, and India, with currencies backed by gold, could be the next nail in the coffin for the USA and Europe. Mm, wow. You know, years ago, I was saying that the, the mighty empire, the longstanding empire of the United States might not even be around in the next 10 years. And that was a couple of years ago. So, I mean, what you're saying is true. So, R.C., what is the outcome if the yuan becomes a world reserve currency? Jimmy, the Chinese yuan as a second world reserve currency would officially end the U.S. as the economic engine of the world, forcing nations to sell dollars and buy yuan to purchase oil and wheat. On March 22, 2022, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell said, and I quote, it is possible for the world to have more than one reserve currency. Jimmy, on our website, we have a paper titled The 1% in Revelation Do Not Harm the Oil and Wine that shines a light on three economic events from global hyperinflation, Revelation 6, 5, and 6, to the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, 16, and 17, Mm. to the economic collapse of the global economy in Revelation 18. And the paper is at a very low cost. It's free. Folks, uh, that's why we have R.C. Merle on the program, and I would strongly encourage that you go to his website, prophecytracker.org. He does keep up uh, daily with stories, uh, financial background, but other stories. He's got a book. We're going to talk about your book in the future, Amalek. I think some people would be very interested in this book. In fact, you quote a lot of my father in there. R.C., thanks for being on the program this week, and thank you for keeping us aware of what's going on financially in the world of geopolitics. Great to be with you, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in our Legacy Series, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, uh, it's amazing when uh, we put these programs together, you and I start working on the questions throughout the week and how they all come together. Uh, The answers, even though all these gentlemen are around the world, how they all really, I mean, they just come together. Things certainly do seem to fall into place. While we're talking to them and the, and the stories, you know, we're looking at events in the light of God's prophetic word, and it seems like each week is consistent. These stories come together, kind of revealing God's prophetic plan. Yes. Well, I just wanted to tell our folks that uh, this next weekend, I will be up in Franklin, New Hampshire, Hope Community Church, uh, Pastor Glenn Carter. I would love for anyone to come over Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. Uh, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. 
I'll be teaching the book of Joel, but if you're a listener of ours and a, a friend of the ministry in New Hampshire, uh, anywhere around that area, we'd love to have you come and join with us and, and uh, be a part of that. Again, that's Hope Community Church, Pastor Glenn Carter in Franklin, New Hampshire. Uh, come on over. Rick, well, we're still offering a lot of neat things on our website, our Prophecy Today DVDs and audio series. And I do think it's a great place to be able to get resources for anybody's study of Bible prophecy. It is, Jimmy. There's all kinds of teaching series up there. There's documentary videos. There's teaching audio series. And of course, we have the news uh, on the website as well that you can keep track of. And, and when you do make a purchase on there, you are supporting our ministry and you're allowing us to bring this program to you every week. And to that matter, if you'd like to make a donation, we appreciate not only your financial support, but throughout the week, we also appreciate your prayers as well. Yes. Well, we are going to our Legacy Series, and this week we're going to continue in our Alpha and Omega Series. We're studying Satan's subtle strategies, especially that Satan started after he got the prophecy of the Messiah to come to save mankind, and the strategy is revealed in Genesis chapter 3, and the results of the implementation of Satan's plan is recorded in Genesis chapter 6. But first, uh, we're going to take a look at the first prophecy of the coming Messiah that's given to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So take your Bibles, turn there, and Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in our legacy series, Alpha and Omega. What this verse, chapter 3, verse 15, is talking about, it is the first prophecy of a Messiah to come in the future. And the prophecy is this, a woman will bear a son. He will have you or allow you to bruise his heel, but he's going to burst your head. He's going to bruise your head. Let's see what the word says. Chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, let me define that phrase, sons of God. It's defined over in the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 7, as an angel. It's defined in Job chapters 1 and 2 as angels. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that's flesh women, that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose, given unto marriage. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 24, Luke 17. Skip over here to verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men and were of old men of renown. Satan's ma malicious contamination was that he would contaminate the bloodline. So a pure virgin woman could not bring forth the Messiah. And so he sent his angels to have sexual relationship with women. How, how could an angel take on the form of a man? If you've read the book of Genesis chapter 18, Jesus Christ appears to Abraham in a pre-incarnate appearance, spends time with him. There's a couple of angels with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ goes back to heaven. Those two angels go over to Sodom. When they walk into Sodom, as they walk into Sodom, out comes Lot and say, Hey, you men, come here with me. Come to my house. I want to wash your feet. That's a Middle East tradition. That's what Jesus did, remember? The upper room, the Lord's Supper. He washed the feet of his disciples. You do that. Come here. Come into my home. I'll wash your feet, and my wife will fix us a delicious meal. 
Those were angels. And the texts called them men. Angels in the forms of men. Those were two men who came, went into the house of Lot, had their feet washed, had a meal. And those Sodomites in Sodom came and said, hey, can those two men come out? We want to deal with them sexually. Angels in the forms of men who ate food. You say, wait a minute. You're trying to tell... Don't you remember what Jesus Christ said to the lady who had seven husbands? And one of the disciples said, well, which one's going to be our husband in heaven? And Jesus said to her and the disciples, there's not going to be a relationship between husband and wife in heaven. Uh, They'll be like the angels in heaven. Yeah, I remember that statement. But what does that have to do with what I'm talking about? He's talking about in heaven. I'm talking about on earth. You don't use that text to prove that a man and a woman can't have a sexual relationship on earth, do you? Just in heaven. So why say the angels can't have a sexual relationship on earth? So don't use that text. Well, but man, look, God put them in prison. 200 million of them. In prison for having sex with women. Where do you get that from? Second Peter chapter 2. Go back to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Second Peter 2, 4. For God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them into hell, the abyss, the bottomless pit, the tatoris which is the Greek here, the Tatoris. And he delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And he spared not the old world, but saved Noah and the eight person, a preacher of righteousness. In connection, he's taking these evil angels, putting him in the Tatoris, the lowest part of hell, the abyss, I believe someplace in outer space. And I'll show that to you in just a moment. You say, what are you talking about? I thought angels were out. They're they're not bounded. Well, there are evil angels out. And I talked about that. Evil angels are attacking all the time. We better be aware of that. Remember in the times of Jesus Christ, what was most of his ministry? Casting out demons. Much of his ministry. You know what a demon is? An evil angel takes up habitation in a human body. That's a demon. And so he was dealing with that. Those are evil angels. But these are a group of 200 million evil angels that were put aside waiting for that day of judgment to come. Go to the book of Jude, the book just before the book of Revelation. The book of Jude, look at verse 6 with me. And the angels which kept not their first estate, that was around the throne of God, likely in the Garden of Eden, but left their own habitation, that would have been the heavenlies, He hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness unto the judgment of that great day. Notice verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner. In like manner to what? Well, how they acted in Sodom and Gomorrah is exactly what the evil angels did. In like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh and setting forth an example. Uh, an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Okay, if this didn't happen in Genesis 6, tell me when evil angels had fornication as a part of their activities. Fornication. We call fornication today when a couple, man and a woman who are not married, have a sexual relationship. 
We call adultery when married people, maybe not with their same mate, their mate, but they with another person's mate have a sexual relationship. God calls it fornication. And fornication is any sexual activity that God forbids. Now, when did angels do that? In Genesis chapter 6. And God said, that's it. I'm going to wipe out one billion of you. Everybody except eight souls are going to be left on the earth. Everybody else will be wiped out. So the reason for the flood, evil, angelic activity, Satan's malicious contamination. Go back to chapter 6. Let me show you something else. I want to show you one more thing. God's merciful compassion. Chapter 6 of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. Let me show you God's merciful compassion. Starting in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect. There's an interesting thought. Perfect in his generations. Does that mean Noah was without sin? Uh Uh-uh. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That doesn't mean Noah was without sin. That means Noah had no evil angelic contamination in his bloodline. How do you know that? I read chapter 5. What is chapter 5? It's a genealogy. Who's it a genealogy of? From Adam to Noah. And there are no gaps in there. And never is there mentioned an evil angel who had a sexual relationship with one of the ancestors or one of the family before Noah. Perfect. No angelic evil bloodline. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his ways. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And because of that, God is going to protect him. Going to protect Noah, his three sons, their four wives, eight people. He's going to take them from one side of the flood to the other side of the flood. And start it all over again. Braining humankind in chapter 9 and verse 1. He says to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish or repeople the earth. And he's going to start it on the other side of the flood. God's merciful compassion. That's the reason for the flood. That's the reason. Let's look at the details of the flood. I'm not going to be able to do this very good justice. Please excuse me, but you spend some time studying this as well. Let me show you the warning, the warning for the flood. Look here in verse 3, chapter 6 and verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also, but he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. A hundred and twenty years. In other words, God comes to Noah and said, Noah, got a little assignment for you. I'm going to give you a hundred and twenty years to do this. Now, you've got to get doing it. First of all, I want you to warn the people about what's going to happen. And secondly, I want you to build an ark. Noah said, an ark? What's an ark? He said, oh, it's a boat. A boat? What's a boat? He he said, well, you floated on the water, and there's going to be a flood. A flood? What's a flood? He said, well, it's going to rain a lot. Rain? What's rain? Because until that point, there'd never been rain. Go to chapter 2, verse 6. Let me show you. Chapter 2 and verse 6. 
This is so good. Well, start in verse 5. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist, a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. No rain! And God says, Noah, I want you to build an ark. And while you're building the ark, the people of the world are going to come say, What are you doing, Noah? And, the, and you're going to say, I'm building an ark. And they'll say, what's an ark? It's a boat. What's a boat? Well, it floats on the water. There's going to be a flood coming. A flood? What's a flood? Well, it rains a lot. A rain? What is rain? Same dumb questions. Noah had 120 years to warn the people. I don't know how good of a preacher you might think he was. He only had seven results. Seven people is all that believed him. Out of one billion, Noah had seven results. Out of a billion people, over 120 years of ministry. But he warned the people, it's coming. Judgment is coming. In Noah's day, the coming judgment was the worldwide flood. That judgment did happen some 4,500 years ago, as recorded in God's Word. The next judgment is the seven-year tribulation period. However, before that judgment comes, we who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air at the rapture of the church, an event that could happen at any moment, even today. Please make sure that you're ready for the rapture. It's a great exhortation from Dr. Jimmy D. Young and his legacy series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. An unprecedented April heat wave affected northern India and Pakistan during April and continues into early May. The temperatures reached 122 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 50 degrees Celsius in some areas. Nehemiah with FMI says one of his uncles in Pakistan died because of the heat. People don't have reliable electricity amid severe power cuts. FMI partners work mostly in the rural areas of Pakistan where the suffering has been greatest. Ask God to protect them as they act as the hands and feet of Christ. And political and military analysts expect something big from Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday regarding the Ukraine conflict. May 9 is Victory Day, marking the defeat of Nazi Germany. It's an important day for Russia because Soviet troops were the victors in World War II. Russia's foreign minister says the anniversary will have no bearing on military operations in Ukraine. Ask God to protect the Transworld Radio workers in Kiev as they broadcast the hope of Christ. You've been listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. 
be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we have been looking at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, it's, uh, this is our time when we take a look at these stories and, and relate them and how they fit with Bible prophecy. That's right, Jimmy. And there's so many stories that are out there today that uh, are kind of just dovetailing in perfectly with what the Bible says is going to happen in the end times. And if you want to start with Ken Timmerman, he was the first on the show today. And when we talked to Ken, uh, he was talking about how Russia is continually isolating themselves from the whole world, but they are growing closer and closer to the Arab world, to the Muslim world. Yes, they are, Rick, and that's really Bible prophecy when you look at it. It's Ezekiel 38. You know, we've talked about this so often. The alignment passages that we refer to, Ezekiel 38, Daniel 11, Psalm 83, those nations that will be aligning with Gog and Magog. Gog is a personality. We've mentioned this so much. You know, it's interesting when you see this, you see them getting closer to these Muslim countries uh, and a relationship that they've had with Israel for so long. They're starting to kind of drift apart from one another. I mean, you've had both prime ministers, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and Naftali Bennett have been there. President Herzog has been there. So, you know, you see this relationship, but now I think it's starting to strain and uh, that's Bible prophecy coming to light. As we look at it, we read it, we can understand. It might not be today, but God is moving these uh, pieces onto the stage or the chessboard, if you will, and he's moving them into place in order for the end times to begin. And that doesn't really begin, uh, well, it doesn't begin until after the rapture of the church. Next, Jimmy, we look at, you know, we have a book on our website called Sound the Trumpets, and what it is is it looks at four main trends that are happening in the world right now that are setting the stage for the rapture of the church, and one of those is Aliyah, or immigration to Israel. And when we talked to Dave Dolan, and we talked about just the explosion of immigration to Israel for many different reasons, but that, that's been taking place since 1948 and even before and uh, now it's there's so much immigration Jewish people coming back to the land and not very many people leaving that's true you know when you look at it I was there in 1984 I was there when the first Russian Jew the first refusenik landed in Israel at Tel Aviv uh, this was before the fall of the Soviet Union but this first refusenik that came from Russia, came to Israel, landed everybody, and I was there. And I really didn't understand the significance of this. But years later, when the Soviet Union fell, we did understand. And that was the first of Russian, many Russian Jews, almost two and a half million Russian Jews that have come from Russia. Now with Ukraine, you have Jews that are going to the land. That Hebrew word, Aliyah, means to ascend, to go up as if you're sending prayers to heaven or you're going up a hill or, or you're going up to Jerusalem. It's used in the Psalms of Ascension that the Jews would pray those three times a year that, we, that they would go to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, that was required by every male and the families would go with them. Well, that word Aliyah is used today for people that are returning or coming to the land of Israel, Jewish people that are coming to live there. And they're not leaving. 
there was a period of time where a lot of Russian Jews would just come and leave. But I think a lot of them now, they feel like they have found a, a place that they can call home. It certainly is amazing, Jimmy. You and I, our first time to Israel in the 80s and then all these many years, not only an eyewitness to history, but an eyewitness to prophecy being fulfilled. Well, many of those Jews that are in the land of Israel right now are preparing to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost or Shavuot. Uh, and that was great to hear Tom Meyer talk about that. Yes. You know, what I liked about Tom's uh, interview was that he talked about evangelizing Jews. Really, he's talking about the first fruits. Now, that's a portion of the first fruits. Christ was our first fruit. Those that were resurrected from the grave, the time when Christ resurrected from the grave, they were all a part of those first fruits. Part of that first fruit ceremony, that feast, was to bring the first of the barley and the wheat harvest to the temple to offer it to God. Really, every time that we pray for our food, we're giving blessing on what God has given to us. And that's what Feast of First Fruits is all about. And that's what this time period is about, where they're continuing to give a, a blessing to God. Now, today, the Jewish people, uh, as we mentioned with Tom, um, really, none of the feasts that they do today do anything for God. Uh, the time period and the and what the Jews do today. And in fact, the only prayer that God will hear will be that first prayer of Lord, save me. And that's why evangelism is so very important. And when we get into the future, they will be celebrating the Feast of First Fruits into the future, into the Millennial Kingdom and forever in the city of Jerusalem. Also, Jimmy, great to hear from Pastor Paul Blair. You know, we talk about or we joke about that he was a Chicago Bear football player, um, but he kind of exposed the stereotype of uh, a dumb athlete because he's one of the smartest guys I know and a great communicator. And he had a lot to say and what they're doing as far as for pastors to teach them about the biblical principles of the United States and how it was founded and how to live the Christian life, how to be a Christian. How can you preach about these things if you don't believe in them? And if you feel like, oh, I can't touch this, this is an area where I can't preach on. Well, then uh, how can you talk to others about how those things should be correct in their life? And I like what he's had to say as far as uh, the United States of America. You know what? We really should be about God's work, which is in everything that we do to give glory and honor to God. That's every aspect of our life, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's really what we should be doing, leading as many people as we can to the Lord Jesus Christ, because without Christ, they're on their way to hell. And it doesn't matter who's in office, they're on the way to hell. So we need to give them the gospel message. Finally, uh, Ron Murrow, always a great interview. He's so smart, and he really uh, uh, shows us what's taking place in the world today, which is really pointing towards Bible prophecy being fulfilled, specifically the rapture taking place. Yes. Uh, R.C., uh, he gave us that information and how it's a world system philosophy. This thought process is moving closer and closer to uh, the end times. Rick, really, after everything that we saw today and we're getting closer to seeing and the, the events that are leading up to the tribulation period, but before the tribulation, the rapture takes place. And that's so important as we read and study Bible prophecy, isn't it? 
Jimmy, it's so very important to understand the times in which we are living and understand where we are in God's timeline of events. And after we see all that we saw today and all that has been taking place, I guess there's nothing left for us to say except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.